to series on uh, the message of Mi- the sermon of Mike, the, the book of Micah, and uh, the the title is Justice and Mercy, and we're, this is the last uh, message of this series. Hope you've been been blessed by it. Well, um, before we begin, just wanted to give you a sense of what happened y- yesterday. We have a, a, just one slide from last night. Now, Mike has already told you we had a great time. Yeah, I went up to the retreat yesterday, and let, yeah, we did a lot of playing, but we also heard Dan Ellis give the word of God last night. It was real good. A couple of sermons, messages by him. I might say more about that next week um, in, in the message, but a great time for us. And Pastor JB was there, and as we, le- as we knew, he's got a basketball game. I was impressed by that. Uh, but uh, but we're, we're, we're looking at, at the, so if, if you're a visitor today, I want to just appreciate you being here. And you may have heard a lot of soprano and alto voices today because... Uh, a lot of us, a lot, a lot of the women, their men are not here. They're they're at the retreat. About sixty plus men and youth were there. Um, so I want to start talking about my son Joshua. I'm talking about him a long time. To catch you up, he, of course, he grew up in our church here, essentially. Um, Joshua, that, that's Joshua. You may it's not a very good picture there, but Joshua, as you, some of you know, here in our church, uh, went away to college and um, um, very excellent musician. He was a jazz piano major. Um, he had dreams of being a rock star, you know, I remember, I'll, never, I'll never forget the day when he said, I'm taking an elective, I have to take a, an instrument, I'm going to take guitar. I said, that's good, boy. <laughs> and then the, he came back that summer and played, I said, this boy's better than me. <laughs> I said, oh, and then, you know, he had that, that mixed feeling about that. But yeah, he, he became, he plays guitar more than, than keyboard now, though he plays both uh, in, in, in churches and in band. But um, he, he, he had visions of being a rock star, but then he said one day he was just up there on stage, and, and it just wasn't working for him. He just said, this isn't what it's about. So he, he has um, <clears throat> transformed himself a little bit, uh, um, settled down. He's, he's 33 now. Josh is 33. Josh 33. Wow. <laughs> he's, <laughs> that means I must be getting old, right? <laughs> uh, he's mar- married now. Picture of uh, Tabitha and Josh. There they are. You, uh, Tabitha and Josh. He's settling down now. Um, he's uh, <clears throat> works at a church. He's going to seminary at a seminary that I wish he wasn't going to, but he's going to seminary. That's good, but that, which is where I want to go because a few months ago we had an interesting conversation. He's a, he's taking a church history class, okay, and he said in that he he, he said, Dad, guess what? For the first time my time in my life, I think I understand Calvinism. Now, now many of you don't know that this is a Presbyterian church, and we're kind of Calvinistic. <laughs> Don't worry about what that means. We're going to talk about that today. He says, I think I understand Calvinism. Calvinism just believes that there's a big God, and that's important. I said, that's right. (laughs) You're exactly right. And I I hope he will continue to think about what the implications of that. Because we're going to talk about that today. What is our God like? What is our God like? The, the fact is that it, the fact that there's a, a a big God is only good news if you have come to know that God. This big God is a loving God. That's who He is, and 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 He is the King who loves His people from the beginning to the end. The Scriptures show us that. We've been looking at Micah, a, a map last time, a map of Micah, the city of Morsheth, Gath. He was, a, he was a little village in the foothills of, of, of the mountain. He was a country preacher, we're calling him. Michael was just a country preacher. A lot of country uh, farm allusions in his book and, and animal allusions in, in his little seven-chapter book. 
I mean, the book is a roller coaster ride. We've been showing you this chart every now and then. Where the, the, the chart just had, had the, the, the flow from a, a section of doom and a section of hope. Doom and hope. Doom and hope. And, of course, the book ends, chapter 7, the last three verses that we're talking about today, with great hope. The great hope, praising for the God who is going to restore his people. By the way, several weeks ago, I promised to, to give you, to have a, a document called the Social Justice Gospel, a humble critique of that document that's finished. I'll have it out on the, on the back, uh, on the foyer uh, table uh, when we're done. <clears throat> but this is our last message on Micah, and I want, we're looking today at, the, at verses 18, 19, and 20. Turn to your Bibles or look to your screen, and we're going to stand as we read God's Word. <clears throat> ESV translation, three simple verses, profound verses. <clears throat> Who was a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. <clears throat> he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You may be seated. My title is simply, Who is a God Like You? Who is a God Like You? You know, naturally, we, we believe that our behavior earns favor with God and, and it keeps God's love for us, but that's not true. Our God never gives up on his people, and he loves his people eternally. It's not our behavior. It's not, it's not, it's not our response. It's, it's God's, God's commitment to his people. And that's what I want us to understand, and that's where this, this book ends. That with all the ups and downs about Israel's uh, 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 spiritual adultery and their idolatry, God's love doesn't fail them. And the same thing is true for us. Today we're going to look at the passage in depth. We're going to look at just some of the things in the passage. But then we'll look at some principles about God that, I want to, that we can lift out from the passage. And then a couple applications for us. <clears throat> Verse 18, the passage. <clears throat> this, the passage... The, the, these couple of verses say a lot of things about God and how his, his activity in, in the gospel. He's a God who is a pardoning iniquity. He pardons iniquity. And Micah is, is speaking in wonder as the passage goes on, in wonder to the God who pardons. You know, we, we, you may be familiar with presidential pardons that, that we have in our country. The president who has the ability to, 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 to say that someone who is guilty is no longer guilty. Probably one of the most famous ones is uh, uh, Richard Nixon, the 37th president of the United States, who was pardoned for the things he did. But I was looking at a list of some of the other people who've been pardoned. Jack Johnson, the champion boxer. Willie McCovey, the Hall of Fame baseball player. Chelsea Manning, the WikiLeaks whistleblower. Uh, Governor of Maryland, Marvin Mandel. Problems in Maryland didn't begin with the last decade. They've been back. <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa, the mafia kingdom. A kingpin, George Steinbrenner, Brenner, the owner of the New York Yankees. Forgot that one. Roger Clinton, the brother of the 42nd president of the United States, pardoned. Presidential pardons, those pardons often happen right before they leave office. You hear about it, and they're kind of, okay, we'll let these people go through. One interesting thing we hear about every year is on Thanksgiving, where a, a turkey gets pardoned. You, you, it's, you know, I don't know why they make a big deal about that, but every, you know, that's... um. Or President Obama, as he pardoned a turkey, and that's uh, President Trump, as he pardoned. See, it's a nonpartisan pardons here. Pardon points to the fact 
that someone who is guilty gets to go free. God pardons us. And that's good news, isn't it? We go free even though we're guilty. He's a pardoning God. He's a God who is passing over transgressions. Passing over transgressions. The word passing over point us back to Exodus, doesn't it? Exodus chapter 12, the Passover experience where the children of Israel were, <clears throat> were told to put blood on the doorposts of the house, of their houses, and the death angel would pass over them as the firstborns were being killed. And then they left. They left Egypt, left it behind, and, and, and they crossed the Red Sea. But you remember what happened? The armies of Pharaoh, who tried to follow them, drowned in the sea. Remember that? So they get to pass over the water, but the armies of, of, of Egypt did not. And so they celebrated, as we heard in Exodus chapter 15, the great celebration song of Moses. Who is the God like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic holy in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In commentary at Walkie says, uh, the I am, Yahweh's incom incomparability, I guess it's incomparability, that's the way you say that, it pertains to his unique character to forgive sins in his intervention in salvation history, not to his surpassing military power, as we might expect. You see, in that day, if your God could beat the God of the other nations, then he was a better God. And that's, that was the thinking. And, 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 and that's, there's more going on than, than, than Yahweh being more mighty than the other gods. No, no. He's the only live, true and living God. And, and his victory, not just over the other gods, his victory is over sin. An even more powerful enemy for human beings. Unlike the gods of the nations, our God is mighty to save. He's merciful. He's personal. He goes out of his way to save his people. <clears throat> so he passes over transgressions. And uh, there's been a couple of allusions to that even previously in Micah. Thirdly, he, he is a God who has a remnant of his inheritance. That's the fifth time in the book of Micah we've seen that word remnant. You can look at it, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. Walkie says, speaking of the, the wonder of this Exodus victory, he says, uh, the remnant of Israel, unknown to, to, to Micah, but made known by revelation to Paul, would include the church. We're part of that remnant, you see, which, which is composed of both Jews and Gentiles who are equally co-heirs of God's promises to Israel through the common baptism into Christ. The exodus that Christ affords his church, bringing them out of the world of sin and judgment and setting them on their heaven-bound journey through the wilderness involves greater wonders, you see. We are part of the remnant of faith. Romans 11, <clears throat> chapter, verses 5 and 6, where Paul is talking about the remnant, he says, so too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Just by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, it's no longer be grace. God is a God who has a remnant of his inheritance. God, God is a God who has anchor. You see that? Don't, don't miss that. We have to embrace that. He does not retain his anger forever. It doesn't say he doesn't have anger. It just says he doesn't retain it forever because he delights in steadfast love. You know, I was thinking about that passage, about that, and I'm going to read a long passage, but it's some, it's some passages that, that that sort of in the context, we begin to understand the anger of God, which is a hard doctrine. 
Let me read, this is from 2 Kings. I've been reading 2 Kings in my devotion. 2 Kings 17. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, the king, he, he captured Samaria and carried the Israelites away to Assyria. Okay? He, he captured Samaria and carried the Israelites. So this is, the ex, this is when the exile is beginning. Okay? Uh, chapter, okay. 2 Kings 17, verse 7. Because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. It goes all the way back there to their disobedience. Verse 9, the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars in Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. They made offerings on all the high places as a nation the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. Here it is. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your father, that I sent you by my servant, the prophet. So God is warning and warning through the ministry of the prophets. Do not do this. Change your ways. Repent. And it says that, that he was, that their deeds provoked him to anger. We have to, we have to embrace it. We have to understand that. That we can do things that cause God to feel angry. It's, a, it's not an angry like we have anger. It's a righteous anger because he's righteous and he's a holy God. The, the verse just goes on. Verse 14 of chapter 2, uh, 17 of 2 Kings. But they would not listen. So God sent prophets, say, I'm angry with you. Change your ways. You're my people. They would not listen. They were stubborn their fathers had passed, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes, his covenant that he made with their fathers, and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that not do like them. So they were doing like the other nations around them. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. There's idolatry there. And made an ashram and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served the Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do the evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. There it is again, second time with this long passage. They provoked him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with them, not just angry, very angry with Israel, and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Okay? Very important passage here in, in salvation history in the Old Testament. So Judah also did not keep the commandments of, of the Lord. So he's turned to Judah. They're also disobedient, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and inflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, king. Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. People of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. So then the summary verse, verse 23, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until that day. 
what we do to that history of why God exiled the people is through God's anger. So, so Micah is, is affirming that. He's, he affirms that there's a righteous anger, but he says he does not retain his anger forever. Do you catch that? He's a God who is like, who's, who's like a good parent. Now some, many of you are parents, right? How many parents get angry at your kid? I raise both my hands. It's a, it's a, it's a natural. And, and I'm a sinner. <laughs> God is the, is, is the great parent, perfect parent. And he gets angry at his children. How many of you, though you're angry with your child, still love your child? God is the great parent. He's angry with his children. He still loves them. That's what, that's what our God is like. Verse 19. Uh, Micah speaks prophetically to his listeners. Here he's speaking about God. He, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He, he, he's a God who has compassion. We heard a, a message about the compassion of God last week from, from, from our guest minister, uh, Dr. Ebenezer, um, Matthew Ebenezer. Um, <clears throat> chapter 9, we heard that. It deals with our emotions. Inner, inner, inner guts. He's, he's a God of compassion. He, he, he's a God who will tread our iniquities underfoot. Interesting image there. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Um, um, when, I, when I see that, I think about um, stomping on roaches. I, I don't when I see that phrase. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You ever stomp on a roach? I'm sure some of you have done that before. You don't have to raise your hands on that one. <laughs> but uh, Think of that image of your sin trying to get away from God. He just says, you know, your sin's gone. There it is. That's, that's an image that, that might be helpful for you. He's a God who casts all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103 says, as far as the high, the high above the heavens, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far move his transgressions from us. Casting into the depths of the sea. You know, in, in Exodus chapter 15, there was a little phrase in, in verse 5. It says, the floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Talking about the Egyptians. Now think, think of that. The Egyptians, the, the red, the, they're trying to follow the children of Israel through the Red Sea, and, and, and like a stone, they, they go down under. And, and you know, we, 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 symbolically, we can think of Egypt as the place of slavery and bondage. And we can think of Israel in our life as the bondages that we have and, and, and the hang-ups that we have. We have a, a, an image in our mind of, of those things being cast into the depths of the sea and dying. It's kind of a word image we need to have because that's what God has done for us. He's cast our sins into the depths of the sea, just as the Egyptians who tried to follow the children of Israel were cast like a stone into the depths of the sea. Hans Wolf, a commentator, says this, nowhere in all the Bible do I find equally powerful statements about what we call forgiveness of sins. Sin is humanity's deadly enemy. That's the presupposition here. When the foe has been hurled into the depths of the sea, life's circumstances are entirely new. 
sent, cast into the depths of the sea. And then verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob, faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. We have a God who exhibits faithfulness. That's fidelity. Faithfulness to our forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the fathers of old. We heard earlier Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's not because uh, you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's character. God is faithful. We sang, I call you faithful. God is faithful. He's, and we need to be faithful to God. God doesn't retain his anger. He's compassionate. He shows his people faithfulness and steadfast love, and that's good news. The Bible gives us many ways of looking at that good news as we looked at some of those today. Our obedience to, to God flows out of our appreciation, our gratitude for this good news. And when we think about the gospel, who we are in Christ, now God now sees us. We need to have these images in our mind that we've talked about here in this passage. Now, what is God like? Look at some principles, a couple key principles is, that I see in this passage to, to just draw it out a little more. Um, God has a remnant who are saved from their sins undeservedly. God has a remnant. I want you to think of that word, the remnant, uh, those who are the, 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 the leftovers there, the, those who are, who, are, who are a little a portion, the portion. The word remnant, you can Google that over the uh, uh, in a concordance and see that that word is all over scripture. We looked, we saw it in, in Romans 11 there about the New Testament church. The idea is that, that, that some reason there's a, God has a people who, who are the apple of his eye. God has a people who are, who he, he's the maker of all people, but there's also people who are his covenant people. We could, we could, we could trace that all the way back to Genesis. I don't want to do that right now, but Think of the book of Genesis and all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. The, 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 the God of all people, is, there's, a, there's a people who are, who are uniquely his people, the remnant. And um, we, we live in a day where people don't want to make that demarcation, that separation. I'm, I'm, there's lots of verses we can look at. Verses of 1 Timothy chapter 5 and 8 where it tells, it tells believers to take care of your own family or your, and your own people, and anyone who doesn't do that is worse than an unbeliever. So, so that's an example of, of this demarcation. There's people who are people of God, people who are unbelievers. Infidel is the, the, the authorized version, but we, we often don't like to think of life in those terms. But I want to tell you, that is the biblical worldview. We need to understand that. I want to talk about that. Now, there, there's an interesting passage in Luke chapter 13 that I want to read through because I think we've forgotten this passage and in our, what I would call our quest for uh, kind of universal salvation that many people have. Um, Luke, Jesus, uh, uh, in verse 22, was approached. It says, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? That's, catch that question? Will those who are saved be few? Look at Jesus' answer. He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many will tell you, will seek to enter, 
and will not be able. And many, I tell you, excuse me, it will not be able. So Jesus says, there's a narrow door. You got to see, you see, there's a narrow door. We like to think it's a wide door. What did Jesus say here? It's a narrow. Now, many are going to enter into that narrow door, but it's a narrow door. Now, and then he tells a story. When, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to, to, to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I, t- I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. People will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, summer last will be first, and summer first will be last. There's a whole lot there, but a couple of things. First, it's a narrow way. He's saying that there's some who think they've gone in that way, haven't really gone in that way, and some who you think would never go in that way, enter into that way from the east and south, north and west, all over the place. Talk about the Gentiles around the world. And, and so Jesus, Jesus saying, yeah, yeah. Will, will it be few or many? I don't know. But, he's, but one thing is clear here. It ain't going to be everybody. You catch that? There, there are some who are not going to be saved. And he, and he reminds them of that in his, in his partial answer here. Very important principles in, in our world today as we proclaim the gospel to people. God has a remnant. God saves his remnant from their sins. Sin is the problem. Our sins. Again, Joshua's, my son Joshua's statement is, is, is we need to have a big God. We have a big God. Calvinism teaches that. We believe the Bible teaches that. Why do we need a big God? Because we've got big sin. We're sinners. And only a big God can take care of big sin. Romans 11, 26 to 27. This is the way all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The remnant are going to be saved because he deals with their sin, not because he just ignores their sin. He's got to deal with the sin problem, with our sin problem. And he establishes that covenant. He goes after them. The remnant are just as guilty as everyone else. <laughs> Spiritual adultery. Mike has been saying that throughout the book. So, so God has a remnant. He saves his remnant from their sins. But the third thing is, is that he does it not because the remnant deserve it. That's where great, that's just grace. This is where the grace of God comes in, you see. Romans 5, he says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's saying that those who are saved, the remnant of faith, don't do it, but aren't saved because they seek it. He's already said in Romans 3 that no one really seeks after God. Only when God enlightens can we do that. Now, this idea of undeserved grace is a stumbling block for many. If I ask you to, to, to ponder it, to reflect upon it more and more and more, this is a, a unique quality of our God. Of this, this God that we're talking about, he's a big God. He's created all things, all people. He's a God of grace. A grace where he takes enemies and turns them into friends. Okay, some applications. One, embrace 
what the atonement of Christ was designed to do. Embrace the design of the atonement. The atonement of Jesus Christ was effective. But just think about that. It wasn't just potentially effective. It did everything that God intended it for it to do. It worked. Christ's work on the cross worked. Uh, Dr. Carson, one of my professors in the seminary, a very important book called, the, the very short, brief book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. He says this, We live in a culture in which many other and complementary truths about God are widely disbelieved. I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can long survive at the forefront of our thinking if it's abstracted from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, or the personhood of God, to mention only a few non-negotiable elements of basic Christianity. The love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, democracy, <laughs> and above all, sentimentalized. This process has been going on for some time. My generation was taught to sing what the world needs now was love, sweet love. Some of you don't even know that song, I do. In which we robustly instruct the Almighty that we don't need another mountain. We have enough of them. But we could do for some more love. It's not always been so. In, gener in some generations, when almost everyone believed in the justice of God, people sometimes found it difficult to believe in the love of God. The preaching of the love of God came as wonderful good news. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they're unlikely to be surprised. That's where we are in our culture. That's where we are in our churches. The love of God doesn't surprise people. They think, well, God's supposed to love me. He's God, isn't he? That's what he does. Well, ponder that. Ponder that as you think about your faith. Look, reflective question, a few reflective questions here. Rather than trying to figure out who is elected to salvation, before we decide to witness to people, we, shouldn't, we should instead share the gospel of Christ with anybody who will listen. Let God separate things out. Don't try to figure out who's part of the remnant, who's part of the elect. The, 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 the preacher last week talked about that, how William Carey was told to sit down. God will save the elect if he wants to. William Carey said, no, no, the, the, the elect will be saved because we go and tell them the story of Jesus. That's how elect, that's the means by which God brings people to salvation. So let's not worry about all the theology of election and all this. Let's go and proclaim the good news of Christ who died on a cross for sinners. That's about evangelism. The second one is about discipleship. Em embrace something else. Embrace the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father because that's what we have. We have God who loves us. Uh, Hebrews 12. We can look at Hebrews 12. Where it talks about the discipline of the Lord, that he disciplines us because we are his children. Reflective question. Rather than responding to the message of God's grace by wasting our time trying to figure God out, should we instead respond with sincere repentance, worship, and obedience to his word? Third reflection question, third, 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 third uh, 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 application is um, about worship. This is to simply experience the wonder of this God and of his salvation, of the atonement. Experience the wonder of it, the wonder there. I mean, 
in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 are, are deep words by Paul. He talks about this great salvation, and he talks about election and all those kind of very difficult things and how mission and election go together. But he ends chapter 11 with these verses. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. For he who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. So Paul wraps up this incredible doctrinal section, and he knew more about these things than we do with we can't understand God. We have to worship him because he's the unsearchable, unique God. Look, every, every, uh, uh, about a, over a year ago, my doctor told me that I had high blood pressure and was tempted of getting close to cholesterol problems. So she gave me a, a pill, well, two pills. <laughs> and every morning when I stagger out of bed, <laughs> I, uh, I do what I have to do. When, about the first thing I do when I walk down the steps is go to the cabinet get two pills, get some water, take the two pills. If I don't do it first thing, I'll forget to do it. So that's what I do. Now, I don't know why, but somehow doing that has helped my levels. Okay? So I decided, I don't know how taking two pills in the morning is going to help me, but if you say it's going to help me, I'm going to do it. Why did I do that? She's smarter than me and knows my body more than I do. So I submit to her and say, I will do what you, have, what you want me to do with, with, in faith that it will do in my body what you said it will do. In my, and, it, it, and she was right. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> That's called faith. That's what faith's all about. F faith is understanding that there is one who is wiser than I am. And submitting to what he says is the remedy for our sin problem. Though we may not understand how it works. Look, I don't understand how uh, uh, faith in a carpenter who lived over 2,000 years ago gets me to heaven. And I've been to seminary and all that. I don't totally understand it. But I know it's true. And it works. We have a God who is wiser than we are. Wiser than any so-called God. Reflective question number, the last one. Rather than try to make I love you better by working harder, doing more for God. Shouldn't we instead respond by delighting in his grace? To spending more time meditating, basking in and embracing his love. It's not about the message of grace. It's about the one who gives us grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is like the Lord? Nobody. Let me give you two, in with two illustrations about two men, Samuel Davies and Andre Crouch. Two men who wrote songs about the love of God. Samuel Davies, um, <clears throat> he's an evangelist, he's a Presbyterian in the middle Atlantic states here, uh, years ago before the Revolutionary War. He, he was the fourth president of, of Princeton. He died at age 37. He's a young man, but he did much. Um, he wrote a song, Great God of Wonders, songs based on this passage. God of Wonders, all thy ways display the attributes divine, countless acts of pardoning grace, beyond thine other wonders shine, who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? In wonder lost, with trembling joy, I take the pardon of our God, a pardon for crimes of deepest dye, a pardon bought with Jesus' blood. 
pardon from an offended God, pardon from sin of deepest dye, pardon bestowed through Jesus' blood, pardon that brings the rebel nigh. Oh, may this strange, this matchless grace, this godlike miracle of love fill the wide world with grateful praise and now it, as now it fills the choirs above. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Who has grace so rich and free? Samuel Davis. And beside him is a good dude named Andre Crouch. They look different, don't they? <laughs> but, but they wrote words about the same God. And his song is simply, I don't know why. I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he cared. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. But I'm glad. I'm so glad that he did. He left his mighty throne in glory to give to us redemption story. He died and he rose again just for me, he says. And I'm glad, so glad he did. Andre Crouch, um, now wasn't a Presbyterian pastor. He was a Church of God in Christ pastor eventually. Grew up in the Kojic uh, denomination. Exalting in the love of God. One a black man, one a white man, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. Hundreds of years ago, contemporary. Andre died 15, uh, in 2015. But they talk about the love of God. This love of God. This one who loves us. This one who died for us that we might have the pardon of our Father. And, and we celebrate that every month as we, as we look at this table and reflect on this table, what it means for our lives. This is the Lord's table, not the Presbyterian table. It's the table of those who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's you, we invite you to, to, to come before us. The officers come forward and continue. This, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this remembrance of me. 